The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast. What makes us take up causes others think are impossible? What draws others to the cause, bonds us together, and gives us an inexhaustible energy and an unwavering belief that we'll succeed? I'll draw on my own experiences and talk to fellow champions about the successes, setbacks, and team dynamics that move causes forward. I'm Marvin Stockwell, and welcome to Champions of the Lost Causes podcast. On today's show, Ellen Kuwana. When the pandemic struck, Ellen started the nonprofit We Got This Seattle to deliver meals to frontline medical workers. What began on instinct, serving people she saw who needed help, became more organized and systematic as she forged partnerships, accepted donations of food and money, worked with volunteers, and served more and more people. We'll talk about what motivates people to champion causes like hers, what sustained her, and what she's learned about interdependence and the resiliency of the human spirit. All that and more on Champions of the Lost Causes. Ellen Kuwana, thanks so much for being on the show today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So you and I met um, last year. Oh, like maybe we knew each other, but we, we met here in the last year, year and a half. Uh, and it was part of my work at St. Jude. We were in Seattle uh, at a, a press reception at AAAS. Um, and we got to, to, to knowing each other um, on the kind of science writer side. Uh, and science journalism side, uh, and we kind of connected it as as writers. But we've stayed in touch, like kind of as the pandemic um, uh, took hold. And I've, I've become really fascinated uh, in a a uh, an entrepreneurial or social entrepreneurial you know project that that you undertook called We Got the Seattle. Uh, and could could you tell our, our listeners just a little bit about what how that transpired, how it came about, and and, and what you do? Sure. And that's, I mean, that's the perfect introduction for it because I don't think I would have done this and I don't think I would have had the success and I know I would have, would not have had the access that I have had if it weren't for my science writing, medical writing background. So for me, um, we moved to Seattle in 1998. I worked at University of Washington for 14 years on various different biomedical research projects. And then I worked at Seattle Children's for six years in bioethics. My husband's an MD, PhD. We actually moved here for his pediatrics residency. So most of the people that we know work in healthcare or are researchers working in laboratories. So when the pandemic hit, I mean, I know even pre-pandemic, my husband, who's in academic medicine, easily works 80-hour weeks. Um, And it's, you know very much what they want to be doing. Nobody complains about the hours because you're dealing with sick kids. You know, it's very fulfilling. Um, So for me, I needed to craft a a more flexible career where I could help take care of our two daughters because he doesn't have much flexibility in his schedule. Um, And then the pandemic hit, I was working two different jobs, one four days a week for a creative agency, 
um, one, a freelance editing for a scientific journal that I've been doing for four years. So that was about 50 some hours a week. And then I'm on Twitter all the time as a science journalist. I, I want to know what's happening in the world and, and what's going on in science. And I follow, I follow a lot of people from the Fred Hutch Cancer Research Center here, University of Washington, University of Washington Virology. And they were starting to tweet about how many COVID tests they're starting to run. And then the restaurants shut down as Seattle became the epicenter. And it was very strange to be in Seattle at that time. Um, we have horrible traffic usually. We're a very busy city, very vibrant. And, you know, nobody was on the roads. It was very quiet. Restaurants were shut down. So UW Virology is off campus and they had no place to get food. So I decided I was working two jobs. I was going to spend my own money and, you know, buy them pizzas and salads from our local place, deliver it and just say thank you for, for what they were doing. Um, I knew they were working 24 hours a day to process COVID tests. Um, so that's what started it. And uh, did you, uh, how long had you been doing it before you came up with the name? And what's the meaning behind the name? <laughs> well, it's it's not the most, I mean, I I did not generate that name. It was sort of a phrase that was already, you know, around. Um, but I, as I was thinking of names, I was thinking sort of, you know, Feed the Frontline and then World Central Kitchen and celebrity chef Jose Andres had Frontline Foods. Um, you know, so things were kind of being snapped up. Um so I just kind of went with a phrase that was already circulating in Seattle. Yeah. And because I was working two jobs and doing this, I was trying to crunch those 50 hours into Monday through Thursday. And then I was contacting people at UW Medical Center and healthcare professionals that I know saying, what does your team need? Can I bring you breakfast? Can I bring you lunch, dinner? What does the night shift need? Do you need coffee? Do you need bottled water? Um, and I started doing that Friday, Saturday, Sunday. And by April... I was up to eight to 12 deliveries a day and they were starting to be every single day of the week. Um, and as you can imagine, people want things in the morning and then they want things around 11 o'clock or noon for lunch. And then they want things at five or six. And then there's sort of a nine or 10 or 11 o'clock at night. Um, wow. And so I was really starting to run myself ragged, not only picking up and delivering the food, but all the coordination that went into how to do this safely at a time when it's, it's, it's sort of hard to remember where we were in mid-March. Um, there was conflicting advice about whether it was aerosolized or not. Right. We weren't wearing masks at that time. Um, you were still allowed to go into healthcare sites, but I, from the beginning, I think because my lab experience, I've worked with radioactivity, I've worked with, you know, cell dyes, you know, dangerous chemicals. I just tend to err on the side of caution, and I'm sort of a germaphobe, my kids will tell you. Um, so I had lined it up from the start. I'm going to bring the food to you. I'm going to put it in my car. I'm going to open my trunk. I'm going to go back to the front of my car. I'm going to have you unload my trunk. Um, the food out of my car onto a clean cart, take it in, don't touch my trunk, I'll close my car. 
you know, because we just oh, right, really didn't sure. know how it was transmitted. And yeah. I'm, I'm grateful at that time that I was so careful. Um, and I was really sort of staying away from people in part, not only out of, out of concern for myself and out of concern for them, but we talked as a family very early that, you know, with my husband being an essential worker, that as a family, we agreed that we had a higher bar to hold ourselves to, you know, my kids were not seeing their friends when their friends were gathering. And I said, you know, we just don't fully understand how this is transmitted right. and we need to keep him healthy. So I felt like we needed to sacrifice a little bit more um, just to be um, very conservative with, with our behavior. And that's what we did. And, you know, now I'm very grateful to that. And it was hard for me to accept other people who offered to help because I didn't want to put anybody at risk. Right. Um, and I was really worried. I, I mean, the worst thing for me would be knowing that somebody got sick helping me with this project. But again, by mid-April with all those deliveries, I, I had to take help. And at that time, um, what we knew was that the younger you were, probably the less likely you were to get sick, seriously sick or die. And so um, my oldest daughter was in college. So her friends who had been offering to help, I said, okay, I'm going to pay you for your time. I want to talk to you ahead of time. Here's the safety protocols that I need you to follow for my peace of mind to allow you to do this. Um, and I paid them really well. Um, and everybody's, everybody stayed safe, but that helped me to extend my reach in a way that I couldn't have otherwise. And I mean, I think what I try to emphasize when I talk about this project is that one person can make a difference. I'm now almost 12 months after the first delivery. I stopped keeping track a few months ago just because it was too onerous with the spreadsheet to keep track of every single delivery when there were hundreds in a month. Um, but I know I've gotten food and, and drinks, you know, coffee to at least 23,000 people. Um, wow. I've raised $91,000, um, which uh, at first I just put up a Facebook fundraiser and thought I'll raise it, you know, maybe a thousand. Mm -hmm. And it, it, in a few months was at 25,000. So then wow. I found a, an umbrella 501c3 to accept the money. And that way I don't have to deal with any of the funds. All of the, all of the Facebook funds have been, you know, I spent, right. um, but the taxes this year are not going to be fun. <laughs> oh, I bet. Yeah, no, that's going to be a nightmare. Um, yeah. It's interesting, you know, um, you, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, it, from a branding perspective, you know, putting on my comms hat, I think to myself, you know, time was of the essence. You didn't have time to to go through some exhaustive branding process while you thought of the name of your your project. Uh, and and at the same time, even though the words may have been kind of somewhat in use, uh, I, I would argue they're perfectly sturdy words, uh, and they I think they still kind of convey the right uh, messages of uh, unity. Uh, and, and hopefulness, uh, and, uh, and, and interdependence. Uh, and, and just as, as, and, and even as, as you, as you were describing this, and then you, you kind of reluctantly, uh, at first, uh, but then you found the right way to put the right safeguards and, and, and guardrails around accepting volunteer help. That's where the we part came in. You know, it, it, it wasn't just like, I got this Seattle and, and uh, it, it is the we, and you could argue that the we was, was, was plural from the get go in the people that you served, but that we also 
uh, came around to 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 the volunteers. At, at, at its height, uh, how many um, or how did that the volunteer piece of it uh, wax and wane, or or has it has it been maintained? No, it it really hasn't been maintained in that. Yes, there there have been large large peaks, and and now it's it's mainly back to just me. Um, and I think again, it's been such a hard time for people. I have wanted to not ask too much of people. I worry about people's health. I mean, I was seeing firsthand sort of the traumatic effect on our frontline workforce, um, having, you know, offering somebody a meal on the phone and having being met with silence and wondering if we had a bad connection. And then I hear somebody crying on the other wow. end of the phone because they, they are so touched that somebody just cold called their clinic to say, hi, this is what I'm doing. I have donated funds what can I do to, to support your team? Um, That's beautiful. You? Um, I can understand yeah, why really, they would, would do to do that. That's, that's amazing. It's really, it's really been touching. And um, I think for, for a lot of different reasons, this has been a really hard time. And I know that the people who have volunteered have gotten a lot out of it. And I've gotten a lot of feedback from them saying, we, we just want to do something. We feel helpless or I'm very privileged to work from home and not have to go anywhere and I can afford to order in groceries and I I feel like I should be doing more to help those people who are not able to work from home and I feel pretty strongly that that is absolutely true that you know if you can afford to please donate to to different projects that are helping people out um it's just a tough economic time it's you know, the people who have been working on the front line have done it and gone to work every day with, you know, in the back of their mind, that knowledge that they might get sick because of what they have to do to put food on the table for their family. Yeah. And it doesn't wow. matter whether you're cleaning a bus or doing surgery, you know, that's, that's true for everybody, especially, you know, true for the grocery workers who really I think have a much harder time policing the public is everybody wearing a mask. Um, right. So they've been, at, they've been at risk, you know, and, and thousands of grocery workers, thousands of, of healthcare professionals have, you know, died. Yeah. Maybe, you know, and we'll never know if they got it at work or, or outside of work, but I really wanted, we got this Seattle to convey a hopeful message of supporting the community and, it was really nice. Some of the feedback I got back from a lot of the moms and parents know when they were dealing with not only their own anxiety, but anxiety for their kids. And, and there's been a lot of talk about how hard it's been for parents and for working parents in particular who have younger kids. But those of us with older kids, it's also helping them navigate this pandemic when they have so much access to media and there's so much news and they're really aware of what's going on and what they're missing out on and sort of what the stakes are in terms of how sick people can get. And so there's been a lot of anxiety and I've had a lot of moms and parents say to me that this 
project and being able to point to what I'm doing and point that out to their kids that, you know, look what this one person with some help is is doing to help the community and this huge impact, you know, it has been able to have. And, um, you know, even just when they go to Costco, they'll call me and say, can we buy you napkins? Can we buy you compostable utensils? You know, can we buy you plates? You know, we want to do something. So it's, I mean, it's mostly been me coordinating because I had the contacts at the different healthcare sites. Um, and, and that was the thing that was really hard for people to access. And I would have, you know, somebody call me, just cold call me and say, you won't believe this. I want to donate $2,000 and I can't get anybody to call me back. And I said, you know, I believe it. University of Washington wasn't even set up to take outside food donations until the beginning of March. So that was very new. And they had to pull people off of different, you know, from development or multicultural affairs to figure out who's going to get food, how are we going to do this as equitably as we can and coordinate it. Um, it. It was a really big process. And similarly for me, I wasn't set up to essentially start a catering business where I would call sites and say, okay, and I'd find out they have 32 people and five people are vegetarians and one person has a garlic allergy. And, you know, what kind of food would you like? And oh, wow. I never, I wouldn't you need even, it delivered. Of and course. I wouldn't think of that. Who's the point person? Yeah, it was a, it was a very labor intensive model, whereas sort of off their plate or frontline foods would say, okay, we're going to work with one or two restaurants. We're going to order 200 entrees that are all the same. And then the restaurant's going to deliver it to the hospital done and that was fantastic and you know they Mm -hmm. had much more reach and were set up to do that whereas I started out with a large paper calendar writing in the smallest print possible these 12 deliveries each day with the you know 12 different restaurants different number of food always asking about vegetarian entrees and allergies um, making sure it wasn't too garlic heavy because people had to wear masks, you know, eventually later on in the pandemic all day. So it couldn't be too garlic heavy of food. It had to be easy to eat. You know, they were often eating on the go. So it wasn't something they needed to cut with a knife and fork. You know, did we have compostable utensils, napkins, Purell to give with the food? Um who was my point person, their cell phone number, backup phone number, because often I would call my contact and I would hear code blue in the background and, you know, the nurse would yell on the phone. I can't come out. I got to go. And I would say, you know, you go and I'd wait about half an hour. And then I'd try to call again, not get an answer. And then I would have, you know, bring the food in wow. because I had to move on with probably another delivery. Wow. <laughs> and also sort of funny side note, you know, pandemic places are closed you know, I would have to come all the way home if I had had more than one cup of coffee, <laughs> had to use the restroom before I went out, you know, for other deliveries. So, wow. you know, times were not normal. Um, yeah, definitely and it's not. Been Gosh. just a series of adventures for sure. Um, the, uh, so sorry, I just, I just saw a thing pop up on my screen that says, that my time allotment is, 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 is running out. So this, so, but, but, but the the silly thing is, yeah, we might have to start another, another meeting and I'll, I'll, I'll get multiple files to send to Gil. Um, But um, so um, that's, that's, uh, but, and and I think 
the funny thing is, I think what, what shot us in the foot is for the, the two seconds that, that you were on by two different devices, it counted it as oh. three people. So it's limiting us to 40 minutes because you have to buy Got deluxe it. zoom. It's the silliest thing, mm-hmm. but uh, yep. at any rate, um, the, uh, uh, what, the, the, what you described is so, uh, in a way, definitely harrowing. I think that's a, a proper word to use about medical emergencies happening. And here you are trying to uh, uh, find a way to fill in the gaps. Um, so, and, and you answered a question I was going to get around to answering anyway, or asking anyway. And that is certainly there were other efforts afoot. And, you know, this Feed the Front Lines stuff, Feed the Front Lines was active in Memphis as well. But you still were able to find complementary stuff to do. And there was no shortage of need. Correct. And that's that's a great point. So off the plate, off their plate and um, frontline foods, their mission was limited to healthcare professionals. So they were doing the medical sites. I was also doing the medical sites. So I was talking to both of those groups and asking which places they were focusing on so that we weren't focusing too much on one place. There were so many places within the city that that needed help. Um, and for me, I'm half Japanese. So part of my personal mission was really to support um, some of the nonprofit medical safety net clinics that focus in South Seattle, more on the Asian population. Um, And so those clinics were very near and dear to my heart um, because they're not, you know, our UW Medical Center, Harborview, Swedish, you know, these are some of the big names and I was helping those places as well. But I really wanted to make sure to help as many places as I could. And I got up to about 70 sites. And also my definition was, was when I wrote my mission statement, I deliberately crafted it to be very broad. Um, So it says any frontline worker. So I've gotten food to grocery store clerks to um, our next big one on March 18th is feeding all of the uh, King County, Seattle Metro bus drivers and our light rail operators, people who schedule clean the buses. Oh, that's awesome. It's I think 3,800 people. It's the largest project I've ever done. Um, yeah, Ronald McDonald House staff and families, food bank volunteers and staff. Um, so it's not just healthcare providers, um, daycare, preschool teachers, anybody who's, you know, at risk because of their job and has to do their job in person, um, veterinarians, uh, veterinary staff. So, um, I had, I mean, it's, it's almost endless, the people that we could, I could support, um, and very, Immediately, it became clear that the smaller restaurants needed help and needed financial help with orders. So it's, I want to make it very clear that while there were a lot of donations, I think in April or May alone, I had about $55,000 worth of donations that I got delivered out within the city. Um, and I also spent probably... 40,000 that month ordering food. Um, a lot of the restaurants revenue was down 80 to 90% and they could not make their rent. 
Um, yet so many of these restaurants were contacting me wanting to donate and I, you know, would start following them on social media and I see that they're, you know, making pho and banh mi and, um, other, other food and, and passing them out just to whoever they can find. And I know for a fact they were not able to make their rent payments, but they felt this need to just feed people who needed to be fed. Right. That's what they do. And, um, this wonderful friend I've had for more than a 15 years, we've worked on a lot of different um, charity projects together. Um, she owns, She's the co-owner of Portage Bay Cafe, which is a very beloved Seattle institution. And they were s- so lovely to add to my list of restaurants that I could call up and, and order with special pricing and, and just know they would deliver great food. And the catering companies were very important because they could actually deliver the food for me. So that extended my reach. But Amy at Portage Bay you know, said something that I'm so grateful she said, and it's, it's stuck with me. Um, it was one of our very, very early meetings in March. She said, be careful what you ask for because restaurant people are givers. You know, that's part of the reason they went into the restaurant business is, you know, they're just generous people and they love feeding people and helping people. And that's, I think food is just something so basic, you know, right. it's, it's, it's nourishing. I mean, you need it, but it's also, a very caring gesture, right? We celebrate with food, you know, feeding your children is, is just something very special. And, you know, the family dinner time it's, you know, it's, and, and I think now that we can't gather, it just goes back to very basic needs. Yeah. Breaking bread with one another. Um, uh, I was just actually right for this interview. I I came from, uh, I I go to church at St. Patrick's downtown and uh, we, I was meeting with a small committee to, uh, to create, it was it's parish council elections, right? And so we got together, we had a small meal, and then we worked on this basically a craft project to put up in the in the sanctuary. Like these are the people running for parish council election, and uh, but it seems like such a simple thing, but it's like it was so great to get together carefully uh, with two other people, uh, both committed to social distancing and mask wearing, uh, and to have a meal together, and then to do a small project together and just share that time together with each other, eating together, sharing fellowship, and then, and then doing a thing that we all care about. It sounds like the most simple, basic building block of human life, but it's something that we've been deprived of uh, doing except here just in bits and pieces. Uh, my salvation <clears throat> in the pandemic has been that my four favorite humans are, the, are my my fam, my wife and our three kids. So, uh, and it's a blessing that we <laughs> that we all get along. Um, uh, and it's been a time of like deepening that camaraderie. But um, I, I really feel for people who live alone, um, and uh, and and just even beyond that, it was still a real treat to be able to get together uh, with. Uh, with with two people and, and do something that we care about and just have a conversation in real time without being aided by a Zoom call. You know, it's like, and so what you satisfy by through We Got the Seattle is you gave people a mechanism to care for one another uh, through the donation and sharing of food. And there's so many aspects to that. So as you describe it, I just think that is just like such a rich tapestry of human connection. Uh, it, it has to be, gr- uh, gratifying. Uh, 
Yeah, I think for me, we've always used food as our as as our family as a really central point. And I joke, you know, I'm part Japanese. My husband is Jewish culturally, but not really religiously. And and our values as a family are food, education, and sort of, I guess, for lack of a better way to phrase it, just being kind to other people. And I think during the pandemic, I just kind of went back to that that core of focus of what was important to me. And I think like a lot of people, not to get too serious, but if you are in a family with a frontline worker, you probably had very similar conversations to what my husband and I had pretty early on. Like what happens if you get sick? What happens if you know, there was a very real possibility of him bringing something home and, you know, then I would get sick. You know, he, he's a respiratory, he's a pulmonologist. Yeah. Um, so often, you know, he, he's got a great immune system, I think, because he's constantly exposed to things. And then I don't go anywhere, but I get sick. And I think it's a lot of times he's bringing things home from the hospital and then, and then I catch them. So that was, that was very, that was a very real possibility in, in my mind. And we had to have those conversations of like, what happens if, if one person gets sick or one person dies? And I don't think that that was that uncommon across the U.S., especially for people working in ICUs or, you know, really seeing COVID up close and personal in their work situation. So right. for me, it was evaluating what am I doing with all my time? And I'm spending, you know, 40 hours a week in this sort of high pressure job that I love. But if I were to die next week, is that really how I would have wanted to spend my time during a pandemic? Just working from home, keeping myself safe keeping my family together. Was that enough for me? And the very clear answer was no. I wanted to be doing something. And for me, that along with getting as much information as I could about the novel coronavirus, being able to do something in response to the pandemic was what helped me to keep my anxiety down. If that makes sense. Like I needed to spring into action. I needed to do something or I was going to drive my family insane, just worrying at home and sort of like a whirling dervish of, oh my gosh, what if this, what if this? Right. No, I totally get that. And, you know, you mentioned, uh, you know, feeling like you had to spring into action Uh, as I've, you know, talked to guests on this podcast. And as I've been writing about why people champion causes, what gives them the fire in the gut uh, and what sustains them and what helps them be successful. Uh, it's that it's that foundational uh, impetus or drive to take action that almost feels in hindsight, looking back on it, uh, involuntary. It's almost like we're compelled to act, and as I listen to you uh, it talk about how it's like you you had to, and and, and it does come down to um, what do you want to remember, or, or like we only have so much time in this life, uh, and 
and we want to do the things that we are put on this planet to do. And, and I think <clears throat> we'd love to get your perspective on this. It feels like in the pandemic that that was all the more uh, valued. Uh, and then you saw a very real need. Uh, as you said, you, you had to go back to your core and kindness um was was in there as a foundational plank of your value system anyway but it just um in a way it was it was forced to come out and show itself in, in a more robust way is that am i is that my way of looking at it or is that does that resonate no i think that's absolutely correct and i think when you see a need and feel like you need to jump in then it's also I'm looking at my skill set, right? And I've done, you know, the PTA and the school auctions. I've always been around food. I have strong connections in my community to the, you know, the restaurants we go to a lot. You know, I know the owners' names and, you know, I know the manager and, um, you know, we've eaten there as our kids have grown up. And it's a part of our community that really, if people don't support those local businesses that they want to be around after the pandemic, these businesses really truly are struggling. And at least that was definitely the case in Seattle. And so I felt the personal need, you know, we were cooking at home a lot. My husband, my husband loves to grocery shop. He's very strange that way. He does all the grocery shopping. He loves going to the grocery store. And I had to sort of rein him in and say, you know, no, you can't go to the grocery store every other day. You know, just go once a week. He loves food. He loves cooking. He loves grocery shopping. But I also said, we are fortunate to have your salary and I feel like we need to order in to support these local restaurants that we treasure. We need to order in twice a week. And, you know, we kind of yeah. made that agreement that we were going to do that to, to try to help these places financially. And then just my project, I think felt very much an extension of that. And especially when the well, anti Asian, yeah hate crimes and all the windows being broken downtown Seattle and in the international district and elsewhere of these smaller businesses that don't have as much of a social media presence. You know, I was calling and saying, you know, what can I do in there? A lot of them who had college age um, children were stepping up, you know, and trying to get the word out on social media for what limited hours they were open and you know, thanking everybody for the support and like, no, please don't put up a GoFundMe. We'll, you know, we'll get through this. We've always managed to get through this, but, you know, and I would call and say, okay, your windows got smashed today. Um, how many meals can you do for me? And what's the most convenient day and most convenient time? And, you know, I need this many vegetarian and, you know, let's set it up. And I will, it was easy to find the sites to receive uh -huh. those food. Um, I, I'll, yeah. I'll say this Memphis, uh, definitely the whole, like support your, your, your favorite restaurants that you, and to help them survive the pandemic was definitely uh, a, a plank that, that here as well. Uh, and that's both something that, that there is an altruistic side, but there's also a kind of like, uh, for Sarah and I, you know, like if you have that to spend and you're able to spend that extra money, it's a, it's it's not only the a good thing to do to to help a business out, but it's also, I mean, it's great. It's a it's, it's more a restaurant like you an love, obligation. Right? It's right. an obligation too. But I will say this: uh, there was there were no you know hate crimes related to, and I as I'm sitting here, I'm shaking. You can't listeners can't see me shaking my head, but I'm just thinking. 
good God, you know why? Um, I, I guess I can guess as to why, but let me ask you, um, what was at the, at the, at the root of these, of these hate crimes aimed at Asian businesses? Well, I think a lot of it, um, it was just the, the ramping up of the, the rhetoric, calling it the China virus. When if it had originated from Sweden, I don't think people would be going around saying, you know, the Swedish virus and attacking Swedish businesses. Um, That's so terrible. It, you Ugh. know, you just when you phrase it like that, it's very obvious that it's, you know, it's not rooted in any, you know, anything other than racism. And, you know, I don't know if people came mm. into Seattle sort of to target international district or if it's people already living in within Seattle. I mean, just, just who knows, but there have been businesses that have had their windows broken three times. And then, you know, sort of on the Facebook support, local restaurants, Seattle restaurants, the private pages, you know, people would say, oh, this, you know, hardware store is giving at cost, you know, so people were definitely setting, uh, stepping up within the community to, to support um, those businesses in the international wow. district. And even to going so far as saying, hey, we're going to meet at midnight at this corner and we're going to walk around the international district. And the more people who can join us, you know, the safer everybody will be collectively. And so that happened for many, many weeks where people were sort of patrolling just as private citizens to try to protect these businesses. That is blowing my mind because like the pandemic is already destructive enough. It's already tough enough for any of us to, to, to live through whatever version of it happens to fall to us. And some of us, you know, got more bad things happened to them than others, but it was, it was, it was, it was a hardship on, on all of us, but to have people intentionally adding extra hardship, it just, and, and I guess it gets down to, um, scapegoating and, and, and one way to deal with something you don't understand is to, is to, is to look for someone to blame. Um, and that is, that's, that's, that's hard to, to, to wrap my mind around. Um, uh, but, uh, but gosh, what a horrible thing that you additionally, you and, and your fellow Seattle residents had to, had to deal with, but, 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 but then conversely, the fact that, that people bowed up and, 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 uh, and marched through the streets to protect people and to, and to that's the esprit de corps, the, the camaraderie that, that underpinned that is, 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 is wonderful as well, even though it was a reaction to something that was really horrible. Right. And I think that was sort of, uh, it was a, a precursor that that similar sort of spirit and the flip side of something really bad happening, sort of the silver lining, then when the Black Lives Matter movement really peaked in Seattle, you know, I was, I joined up with Off Their Plate and we set up tables downtown during the healthcare marches and the Black Lives Matter marches to, to hand out food to anybody who was down there. Um, and again, that was a little bit overwhelming. There were just, there were so many people and we do have a lot of unhoused people in Seattle. And, you know, they, of course, are sort of crowding the table and they often don't have masks. And I was probably twice the age of, of many of the people who are volunteering to hand out food. And so I think with age, you get sort of the confidence and the <laughs> gravitas to 
use your voice. And I've really had to coach myself on that during the pandemic as a, as a, as a woman, as, as a smaller person too, to use my voice and say, you know, please stop. You don't have a mask, you know, stay six feet from me and I'll be backing up and I'll have my hand up as a symbol and I'll be using my voice, you know, loudly and forcibly. Um, but I felt also as a mom, like I needed to protect these younger volunteers who were just like, Oh, here you go. And I'm like, no, back up. You don't have a mask. I will bring, I will reach the food out for you, you know, take what you need, but you need to back up. Um, so those will always be very vivid wow. memories for me. But I mean, again, just, I think trying to focus really on the positive was there were so many people who I think their perception of what's going on in the world has been dramatically influenced by these very up close and personal interactions and participating. I mean, it's, it's really been an incredible time this, these past 11 or 12 months, just, it really has just historic. Right. And to, you know, I took my kids down to that area in Capitol Hill where everything was happening. Um, And, you know, we left at seven o'clock at night because, you know, we just, people come in sort of and it looking looking for a fight or there's just so many people and things did escalate quite a bit so Uh i was happy we we left when we did but um i think it's important for for everybody to to see that and to participate to whatever level they feel safe right you know it's interesting you talk about you know in supporting people out for the the black lives matter movement you know marches um uh it, it, it's it's interesting there were there were two you know things that in any given year they would be like oh like they'd be the dominant like stop everything kind of like thing of the year anyway but we had uh several things happening all at once a once in a lifetime you know divisive election uh the death of joy george floyd uh and others and uh you know the 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 kind of the civil rights movement um taking another giant you know, uh, finding a new uh, iteration and a new strength and a new voice and a new ferocity uh, and a new effectiveness um, and the pandemic. It was like it was all rolled up into one. And to hear hear you talk about how, you know, um, you know, just the way you had to march in there with confidence. uh, Where do you think you found that? Where, where Where did the confidence to... Um, I, I can understand, you know, you feel like, you know, we got the Seattle was, was, was came out of the fact that you wanted to do something constructive with your time. I mean, I think you can give a left, a real left brain answer uh, in that regard, but I mean, what gave you the courage to, to, to think that you could then like march into these other, these other scenarios and continue to deliver on your mission in different ways? That's a great question. I think, I mean, I was scared at times. There's no doubt about it. But I think you just, once you have decided to do something and you're doing it, you have made the decision that that's important enough that hopefully you've weighed the risks and you're willing to accept that. I would much rather get sick as a result of helping other people rather than get sick 
sitting at home and then my husband or my child bring something in because they saw somebody or they were in the grocery store. Um, and that, I mean, I don't think I took unnecessary risks. I mean, I was with a very good friend um, when we were feeding people down in Capitol Hill, um, mainly the healthcare professionals who were marching for Black Lives Matter. Um, she's a nurse. You know, we were wearing good masks and face shields. I was very aware to try to keep my distance as much as possible from other people. Um, so I don't feel like it's an adrenaline junkie type of, you know, parachuting in, trying to to do good. It was more, you know, I've lived here since 1998. Um if the opportunity came up to pass out food down there, I wanted to help. And I think oftentimes in situations where there are people who are less confident or younger, I think sort of the mama bear comes out in me where, you know, I will step up. Whereas if it were just me, I might not be sort of as <laughs> ferocious or vocal about telling people, you know, you need to step back. Everybody will get food. Please, you know, don't crowd us. Um, but it's feeling protective about the other younger volunteers. I think that that gives me a stronger voice. When I think back about um, the kind of foundational impetus, uh, as you've described it, and I think back about uh, my own, like, kind of drafting, if you will, the, the causes draft us and it's, it feels involuntary. It's like, I like to describe it as we're three miles out to sea with, with no land in sight before we even realize we're on a journey and we're there staring at the, in the faces of our, our shipmates. But I, I feel like it's, you know, uh, our aspirational higher selves that grab the steering wheel and uh, away from our kind of more egocentric uh, status quo preserving uh, selves uh, because what's right is right. And, we, and it's like we can't override our, our ego, you know, would, would have us override our foundational values to kind of protect us. And of course, that, you know, there's there's value in, 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 in protect, you know, we want to be safe, right? But but as I as I hear you, I hear both aspects in your journey. Uh, I hear, but you let the aspirational higher self lead is, is the thing. It's like you 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 couldn't just sit on your hands, and so you you just started doing stuff. Now later, the, you know the the ego piece of you uh, did chime in with some make sure to safe you know like all that that safeguard yourself stuff is is, uh, is there, but. It, and and maybe I'm getting too like psychological about this, but I feel there's some truth to that. You know, our 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 aspirational higher selves do kind of like commandeer the the brig, if you will, and, and just like and off we go. Did you did you feel like did you feel planful at the outset? Uh, if so, I'd, I guess I'd kind of be surprised. Or did the planful piece kind of like lurch into gear later after you had kind of like gone all in? I'm not sure I ever planned. And that is definitely something that is true for me in general. If if there's a 
gap or a need or somebody doesn't step forward to lead, I will step forward. I mean, my mom says I was a very bossy child. Um, I just like to get stuff done. And if something's not being done and nobody's doing it, I will jump in. And I, I'm not one of those people who gives it a lot of forethought for better or for worse. Um, but with this, I really did feel as if my, my years of experience in research labs, that I was really well prepared to do this as safely as anybody could. And that's why it was so important for me, at least in the beginning, to pick up the food and deliver it myself um, in terms of keeping the healthcare workers or whoever else I was delivering to as safe as possible. I felt like I could deliver the food safer than the average delivery person in terms of um, I'm very aware when I touch my face because I've worked with really nasty radioactivity, for example. Um, I know how to, you know, take off gloves properly. I Purell all the time. Um, I was wearing glasses very early on to keep me from touching my eyes, even before that was really sort of publicized as, as something useful to do. So um, I just, I, you're right. I just jumped. I didn't plan. Um, and I don't think I could have planned. I think if I had known, Ellen, if you start this, you're going to be doing this 12 months from now. Um, you will feed 23,000 people, work with 75 frontline sites and 75 restaurants. I think it would have been too overwhelming. And it yeah. just, so it just grew and proceeded and created itself in a very organic way. Um, and I've had amazing friends who stepped up to help to just, you know, what do you need? You know, buying me hundreds of plates at Costco or um, <laughs> I have a friend in, in Taiwan who's like, this person works at this hospital, get in touch with her. She'll pick up food every week submit the receipt, you know, um, it's just been amazing how many people have been interested in this and become involved at some level. Um, and then I really haven't done any fundraising, but it's very, um, gratifying to see donations keep coming in and it helps that they're tax deductible, but, you know, I don't know how half of these people hear about this, but you know, I have made a very concerted effort to post to my personal Twitter um, account. And then I started a Facebook page for this where I try to post. But as you know, you know, the social media takes quite a bit of time as well. So, sure. you know, sometimes I just don't have time to do that on top of everything else. But that's been a very com important component and a, and a way of reaching a lot of people. So I don't think this project would 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 have the same shape were it not for social media. And that's just been such a huge part of this project. Yeah. I, I think that um, in a lot of things we, we, we planning is emphasized strategic planning. Uh, but I, I do feel like, you know, intuitive uh, action and taking what defense gives you quote unquote um, is, is underestimated uh, or is undervalued. Um, it, it doesn't sound <clears throat> like take take my own industry that I'm that my profession public relations, you know, 
even though I'm a media relations guy and you have to surf the news environment and figure out what's the news today and how does what my organization or my cause, how does it fit into that narrative? Um, so my own cause is a preservationist cause for the, you know, uh, dormant Mid-South Coliseum. It's been closed since 2007. And um, about a month ago, uh, we got, you know, so we've done the exhaustive studies that proven that the, the building's in excellent shape. And we've, you know, we, we've done all these things uh, and stared down the kind of like it being on the bulldoze order and got that taken away. You know, like it's been a six year long uh, effort, but just here recently, now, now that the, the building is, is, has largely been saved uh, and it's just a matter of like, finding that third party investment and working and collaborating with the city to, 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 to surface that through VIP tours, et cetera. We got curious about, <clears throat> Hey, you know, the Coliseum could be a great vaccination site and, you know, like mass vaccination sites. So my point is you're constantly looking for things on the horizon that present themselves uh, and, and then think, how does my project fit in with that or does it, you know, uh, and looking for opportunities. But I don't, I, I think the intuitive searching and iterative process, it, it, it's, it's lauded in, in some realms, you know, like take, you know, the Stanford model of empathetic design thinking, et cetera, um, uh, and other related uh, methodologies or ideologies. But when you're applying, when you're when you're nominating uh, yourself for a silver anvil award for a PRSA, you know uh, it. They want to show you. You kind of have to retroactively go back and fit your 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 efforts into a strategic plan as if you planned it perfectly, note by note, from the beginning. And I think there's a disingenuousness to that. And when I hear you talk about this, I just I mean I'm I admire the fact that you just started acting. You started acting and then you took it from there and then you took the next step and then you took the next step. And, you know, all of us who champion causes, if we stopped at the outset to think, where might this go and what might it demand of me? I don't think most causes would get started at all. Uh, my own, um, and I know I'm kind of going on and on here, but just real quick, um, at the outset, I was really only, I saw a friend who was upset about the Coliseum being bull, the, the, the talked up that it was going to be bulldozed. He had the fire in the gut. I'm a PR guy. I said, Mike, let me do you a favor. How about I liaise with the, with the paper uh, and get a, a, a guest op-ed and I'll act as your editor. And that was my, I was just going to do that one good deed, help my buddy sound off in the newspaper and then the op-ed caught fire. Everybody shared it in social media. <clears throat> a petition began to circulate from others. And the next thing I knew, I was the spokesperson for a for a movement, uh, which has now mm -hmm. lasted six plus years. But so I share your like you're like oh gosh, who would have known it would have grown it? But you didn't <laughs> stop to think about that, did you? You just said no, I must and, act. But you bring up you bring up some key points, and I I think part of that is the importance of personal connections. You know, if you hadn't had that conversation, you wouldn't have gotten involved. And for him, without right. your expertise, 
he might not have had the confidence to write an op-ed or know how to place that in a newspaper. So it's having those personal connections and that network, which I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm a shameless networker um, because it's a two-way street. You never know what you could offer someone else or what they can offer you and what that might lead to. So that's that was a huge part of the success of this project was was my personal connections or being able to make those personal connections. Um, and I think we all bring into these projects whatever we've learned from our professional life. And if you've worked in healthcare before, you know, I brought in when I got somebody's phone number, I read it back to them, made sure it was correct. Then I followed up with an email and asked them to check the phone number again. And then what made this so labor intensive was I got the full name, address, parking directions, you know, driving directions um, at the restaurant. And I connected them by email with the receiving site and the delivery driver, which was often myself. But so everybody had everybody's cell phone numbers. Everybody knew what to expect when all the instructions, you're going to stay six feet apart driver's going to pull up. They're going to call your cell phone. You're going to come out with a car. It's going to be clear who you are, who unloads the trunk, all of that written out. Um, I think that attention to detail and confirming that everything's correct is one thing that really set my project apart. And I know, you know, like UW Virology would call me and say, you know, this other organization or, or business organization was supposed to bring us lunch. Nobody ever showed up can you get us lunch? And within an hour, you know, I would get them lunch or, you know, they would just start to rely on me more because I put those systems in place that you just bring sort of process improvement and those ways of avoiding mistakes and errors into this project from your work. Um, And I think it's important to say, too, that this project has changed a lot. And I think you have to be responsive to change. So in the beginning, it was all about getting these sites hot meals when they needed them and people were eating together. And then as the pandemic got worse and it became clear that it's aerosolized, then people can no longer eat together. Right. Because you have to eat or drink unmasked. So. Now it's changed to what restaurants can prepare the food, cool it down, package it up so it's reheatable. And now instead of delivering hot food, I'm thinking more about how many boxes of individual meals can your refrigerate accommodate? I'm going to stock your fridge, put a, you know, print you out a sign to put on the outside and people can grab food, heat it up and go someplace private to eat, or they can grab it as they leave their shift and take it home. So they don't have to worry about dinner or can we get, Um, gift certificates to restaurants so they can order and stop on their way home. Um, So kind of the model of what they need is, is changing as well. Um, And I think it's important to say on a smaller scale, you know, people always say like, well, I I can't do this, you know, in my town, but you know, everybody has a veterinarian or a dentist or a pharmacist or a grocery store where they go or a daycare that they know is in session, you know, just call them up, you know, talk to the clinic manager, talk to, you know, whoever can answer questions like, how can I get you food safely? What do you need? And it may not be food. I just got 500 lip balms to UW Medical Center. You know, you're wearing a mask all day, you're breathing in and out, your lips get dry, you know, hand hand salve, 
what do places need and, and just do it on a small scale or order pizza for, you know, your neighbor who's a, a frontline worker and just say, thanks. Right. I think it's these, these small things can just make a huge difference. A lot, lot of people found their way to be useful. Uh, and, you know, even though you, you are the kind of like central organizing and, and, and pro- propels, propulsive, I guess is the right word, force uh, behind We Got This Seattle, you also throughout this conversation have uh, talked about how you leverage your personal Rolodex uh, and like not only people you knew, uh, but people who came out of the woodwork. Um, I like to talk about, um, or I, I, as, I've, as I've written about this, I think to myself, what the, the team and, and whatever, however that team manifests itself, somewhat kind of materializes out of the ether, like um, th- be it through social media as a way of information sharing. I feel like <clears throat> the, the, the same people that are drawn to our cause as, as fellow champions, people who champion the same cause. In whatever degree, some people uh, join for a season, people, some people do you one favor, and that's their contribution to championing your cause. I feel like it's the same bat signal in the sky that we're all responding to. Uh, and we all, and I'm using air quotes here, care about Gotham and its people, you know? Uh, and it's like, it's that, it's that, that call to respond to need and, can you talk a little bit about what type of people were, did you draw to your cause as, as, as allies? And you can take that anyway, in terms of like central volunteers or particular organizations that you could rely on or, you know, what yeah, that look like? this, and, and it, this has been fascinating sort of who has been drawn to this project. And for example, I will always be so grateful to a woman who I did not previously know who contacted Portage Bay. Um, and because of my connection with, with that um, restaurant and catering company, um, she connected the two of us. Um, and this woman, Signe Burke, who works at Amazon, her family's from Colorado and her mom, I think, or dad knew the person coordinating frontline foods there and, and thought maybe Signe could do that here in Seattle. Um, and so she was looking into that. And so she kind of found out what I was doing. She was also talking to the guy at Microsoft who's, who stepped up to lead frontline foods here in Seattle. He and I had talked to see if it made sense about joining forces. Um, I had just gotten started two or three weeks before both of their inquiries. So I already had a pretty robust um, fundraising stream coming in on Facebook. I was just so busy. I, I didn't feel as if I had the bandwidth with really to merge with one of these um, larger projects. It would have been a lot more sane <laughs> if I had, because Frontline Foods um, World Central Kitchen has, you know, all this software and full-time PR people and social media people. And I was trying to do all this myself, but you know, it's a little bit like your, your baby. And I wasn't sort of ready yet to um, relinquish any of that sort of really hands-on give and take that I was getting from the project. But Signe came in at a time with just such wonderful energy and a, what can I do? What, what do you need? And of course she's a very 
competent, amazing person. And so, you know, she saw I was writing on this big paper calendar, you know, 12 entries a day with all these details. And she's like, okay, I'm going to go find you some, some kind of calendaring, you know, software that will work. Um, and not only did she do that, but she called the people who had created it and said, here's what we were doing. And can you customize this? Here's what we need. And oh, that's so you know, cool. came up with this amazing thing where you just type in the information, it populates a calendar. It was on my phone. I could print it out and then I could hit a button and it emailed everybody involved all the details. So it's, it saved me hours and hours of time. And, and oh, she started cool. doing some of the deliveries and she lived in a different part of town. So she went on next door and said, you know, what restaurants do people love, you know, in Belltown, you know, and everybody said limoncello. And so, you know, then we got a new Italian restaurant that was helping us with, with food. And, um, I feel as if people have just materialized at the time. I was so exhausted at that point. I might have given up or quit or or significantly scaled back, but her help and her energy and just having another person to talk to, which is, you know, strange because we didn't even, you know, really do Zoom calls Um so you know somebody, but you don't, you know, you might walk past them on the street in essence, but, you know, she popped in for a few weeks and just did so much to help me. Um, and then I've had, you know, friends whose high school senior is really good. And I'm, I didn't really know much about creating a website. So I just handed everything off to him and just out of the goodness of his heart, he's been updating my website. Um, there's a, there awesome. was a, a <laughs> national volunteer database of scientists because a lot of like University of Washington shut down the labs for a while. So you have this group of researchers who aren't, you know, they can't go to their lab. So they're working from home, but they've got very specialized skill sets. And so they contacted me and she's up in Canada, the person who runs that. And she's like, well, what do you need? I can you know, search for all the volunteers in Seattle. And I mean, one thing I didn't have time to follow up on, but, you know, wouldn't it be amazing if they wrote a letter to all of the different biotech companies in Seattle and said, hey, can you donate to this project that's supporting UW Virology, who, by the way, just yesterday processed their two millionth COVID-19 test. So they're not only running all the tests for Seattle and a lot of the state of Washington, they're running COVID tests for a lot of the national clinical trials that are going on. Um, and they've been working 24 seven, no exaggeration, 80 to 120 people in eight hour shifts, three shifts around the clock every single day since the end of February of last year. Wow. Two million tests. Uh, she said something like, that's more tests than they would have normally run in 37 years. <laughs> wow. That's, that's, uh, that's amazing. And, and, and uh, that's amazing, but also is the, is your tale of, of how people came out of the woodwork. And that resonates with my own experience because um, Mike, the guy who originally had the fire in the gut and I offered to, 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 to help him with the op-ed uh, he's was a longtime friend of mine. He did this, the, the, the vinyl seven inch cover art for my band's first seven inch back in the nineties, you know? And, uh, so I'd known him for years and we ran into each other at our, at a, at our children's school fall fest and we just got to talking. So it wasn't that Mike and I weren't already friends, 
but it had been a while really. We hadn't worked on anything specifically together. And then all of a sudden he and I were thrown into as to things as the one and two. And over the course of the next, <clears throat> excuse me, couple of years, Mike and I like, you know, we, <laughs> we were joined at the hip, so to speak, um, as the one and two of the Coliseum coalition. Uh, and it's amazing how, and the current president of the Coliseum coalition, my friend Roy, uh, I knew him peripherally, but I know him really, really, really well now because we've, we've worked together through, you know, just the parts of the campaign of this and all the press cycles and all the adversity uh, and all of the challenges. Um, I, I want to go back to one of the things that, that you said uh, or, or what's, what's, what's re- apparent in what you said. And that is the diversity of skill sets that presents themselves. I, I feel like that definitely happened in my case too, because I'm the, the, the PR, you know, uh, spokesman type that understands how to pitch the media. But uh, Roy, for instance, is, is he's an IT guy and he's great with mouth and great with spreadsheets, which is my absolute kryptonite. <laughs> you know, so when it comes to doing research, for instance, you know, like he did an analysis of indoor seating capacity decline versus increase in population growth for the Memphis MSA. <laughs> you know, that, that research makes a very powerful point, which is that Memphis is one of the, it, it only has one other peer city who has a, a lower per capita seat count of indoor seating versus population, you know, per capita. Uh, and so in the, in the hands of, or in the rhetorical arsenal of your spokesman, uh, it, it, uh, that's a useful talking point, right? But like, I wouldn't have known how to go crunch those numbers and put them in a spreadsheet and analyze peer cities, but Roy loves that stuff, you know? So it's like, you don't know how to design websites, uh, or you certainly didn't have the time to go apprentice to it, but somebody did. Isn't it cool? How like that stuff, like, like, like how that happens. And, And I'm still fascinated and curious about how that materializing out of the ether or, or being tracked or beamed together happens. Yeah. And it's not, it's not enough to, uh, I mean, you know, you could say, Oh gosh, it's, you know, it's just pure magic. How did that happen? Oh, it's uh it's serendipity. There are all sorts of words that you use to, uh, to describe it, but in your experience, what, what do you think is, is, is anim is, is it a, is it a common denominator of goodness or, or willingness to help or what is it in your view? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I think there are just people in this world who cannot not sit idly by when there's something that needs to be you know, some problem that needs to be solved. I think, I think to a large extent, that's why I went into science. I mean, and I've sort of crafted this strange, not strange, but, you know, people arrive at science communications from all different routes. You know, some are communications majors, some are English majors, some are anthropology, some are harder sciences. Um, And for me, you know, my my parents, I think, always emphasized 
science as a way to solve problems and to make the world a better place. Um, mm -hmm. And so that's always been in the back of my mind. Science was not what I was best at. So that's been challenging. Um, there's a lot of failure inherent in doing science. So you have to learn to be okay with failure. And I think that's a really important point. Oh, right. And you have to have supportive mentors that normalize that failure is going to be part of what you do. And I was very fortunate. Um, my now husband, I, I followed a boy to San Francisco. He was, he was already in first year of, of his MD PhD training first year of med school at UCSF. So two weeks after I graduated from undergrad, I went out to San Francisco with, you know, no job, <laughs> sublet a room, wow. tiny room, like the size of a closet. Um, was fortunate to get a job at UCSF, started doing research. Um, and then heard about a master's program for trying, they accepted two people a year, fully funded, trying to get more minorities into science. So I applied and, and, and got one of those spots and, um, that's cool. Was, yeah. I cannot say enough good about UCSF and the amazing scientists there. And not only intellectually amazing, but also just very supportive of students and encouraging people. So, um, you know, grad school for a lot of people is sort of a dark, depressing time. You know, mine was only two and a half years, but very fortunate just to work with really great scientists who encouraged me and you learn, okay, this was a complete failure or I messed this up. And then you learn, okay, what can I, what can I take away from that? And how do I do it differently? Um, and I think that gives you confidence and maybe a, a fearlessness that you need to have to jump into a project like this. And I didn't put any pressure on myself in the beginning. Anything was better than nothing. So I was, I had set aside, okay, I'm going to order pizza for UW Virology. When I went to pick it up, told them what I was doing, this local pizza place, Pagliacci immediately said, oh, we're going to donate this. And then they handed me a receipt and I sort of gulped and went, oh, crap, that would have been $500. I hadn't really thought it through. And so I'm like, okay, I'm going to go and I'm going to eat wow. cookies and and, and chocolates and, and, you know, cans of water to, to take along with all this salad and gorgeous pizza. Um, and then I thought, amazing, yeah. you know, two days later I thought, well, you know, I would have spent $500 and I only spent a hundred. So I'm going to spend 400 and, and, and get more food. And I have a friend who was making bagels. Um, and I called up Andrew Rubenstein and he's like, yeah, let's do bagels. And we did that to UW medical center. And then I called, um, our favorite Indian restaurant at the time, Taste of India. And I kind of, am, as you know, I'm a, I'm like a talker and I'm kind of hyper. And I was like, hi, my name is Ellen yeah. Kawan. And I, I'm, I'm getting food to, to frontline workers and lab people and people dealing with COVID and, and um, I need food and, and, you know, it could be discounted or maybe you could donate it or I, I don't know. And, and we can talk about it. And I was talking a mile a minute. Sure. Calmest, kindest man. And he just said, Ellen, what do you need? I'll donate it all. And this was wow. the third week of March, you know, lots of uncertainty, a lot of anxiety. Seattle public schools have shut down. All the businesses have shut down. My parents are in lockdown in a independent living facility. You know, my husband's at work. We're all worrying about his safety and something about, I also hadn't slept more than three or four hours every single night since March 13th, but it, wow. it just, 
I immediately got choked up and, and I was crying as I talked to him on the phone, just this immediate answer sure. of yes, what do you need? I'm going to donate it. I'm very fortunate. I'm getting choked up now listening to the story. Yeah, and, and something sure about listening will some, be as well. It's amazing. Yeah, and I I took a picture when I picked up that that donation and I posted it on social media and I just I think I I think it resonated because I let my emotions through on that one. I said like yeah. I am choked up, you know, this is what I said and he said, "Ellen, what do you need? I'll donate it all." And you know, there are good people out there. And that tweet got 2.5 Five eight million impressions, meaning wow. that many people saw it in its original form on Twitter. That's a lot. Which was amazing. That's uh, a yeah, viral tweet for, for my, sure. <clears throat> yeah, and that's what my girls came down the next morning and said, "Mom, you went viral." And I was like, "What? What do you mean? What are you talking about?" <laughs> that's amazing. So, you know, I, I feel like the voice of there are two kind of enemies to, to, to acting uh, that, that, that I've identified. One is the voice of inner doubt that kind of keeps us from acting. Now, in this instance, you clearly, your, your higher aspirational self rested control of the steering wheel and, out, and off you went. And as, you, as you, you've said, that's how you kind of foundationally are, or that's how you are more often than not. Uh, and, you know, the ability to, failure, to, to, to fail is, it, it is a gift. The, the and and it, it that's another thing that 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 keeps you from uh, if you fear f- that failure is a is 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 terrible uh, and not part of the iterative process it can hold you back but you marched past that as well I think this in this last thing you've been identifying the thing that comes to mind is another uh, uh, foe of 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 us taking action and championing causes. We're just acting out of the goodness of our heart in small ways, smaller ways, uh, is the wider voice of societal pessimism that says that people are selfish, that people are not good, and that that uh, that uh, nothing but self-interest and, and and hatred and greed run the world, and that's not true. Uh, that's not true. It's uh, we have to tune out those voices. They never go away entirely, the voice of doubt, the voice of pessimism. But once we do, um, we realize, and what what you've done is that you acted uh, counting on goodness to manifest itself. You put your own goodness out there and you did it in good faith such that you expected goodness to return to you. And it did. I, I feel like when we champion causes, we have to act in, in, in expecting goodness to manifest itself. And then at first, we're surprised when it does. But, you know, the reaction of on, on Twitter uh, shows you how much all of humanity knows that, that goodness begets goodness and that people are good. The, the world is – I've come to view goodness as, as humanity's uh, – um, you know, predominant trait. And that seems countercultural, but I feel like that has come to, that has become more visible in the pandemic. Would you agree with that? I, I do agree. And I think I've, I've tried to be really honest on Twitter and I have posted posts saying, I'm really tired or I'm really down right now, or I'm having a rough day. <laughs> I had one day um, 
where, you know, kind of worried about finances because um, we're not out of debt yet. And, you know, it's been great, you know, Jose Andres or, you know, Lizzo donated a meal to UW Medical Center. I know she's been doing that nationally. You know, these people are still making money. I did this project at a pretty high financial cost to myself and my family. And there have been days I've been, you know, I have sort of felt a little bitter, like, why am I doing all this? Or why aren't more celebrities stepping up, you know? And I think basically people are good, but what we see so much in our society with celebrity culture, how much athletes get paid or actors, it we focus too much on sort of the the material aspect of life. Yeah. Um and and that's warping. And so and and just in the same way, you know, like we didn't do anything for spring break last year and and my daughter said, everybody's at the beach. And I said, no, just the people who are posting are at the beach. So it, it skews your perception. Um and so well, that's a good point. Yeah. I think it's been really important to put on social media not only what I'm doing and this project and how much it's helping and how much sort of they try to get the emphasis on the frontline essential workers and how much they're doing to help our society function. Um, these essential services of healthcare, education, groceries, trucking, you know, the bus system. Um, but also to not always just post happy things. Um, and so I had one really hard day where, you know, I, th- I think I was still working both my jobs and doing, we got this Seattle. I was worried about my kids. Um, I think this was in April and I had a favorite wine glass and I dropped it in the kitchen floor and it shattered into hundreds of pieces and I was barefoot. And normally I could take that in stride and for some reason, it just was like the last straw. And I just started crying. <laughs> I'm not a crier. I come, you know, my my dad yeah. is Japanese, very stoic. And I thought, okay, just let yourself cry. Just like, obviously, you need to release some of this anxiety and emotion and, you know, fear and sadness about what's going on in the world right now and worry about your kids and worry about your family and worry about the, not only the mental health of my, my older parents, but also their physical well-being when they're locked down in 800 square feet, you know, and can't move around as much. Um, so I posted to Twitter about that. I was like, you know, I don't know why this was such a big deal, but I dropped my favorite wine glass and I don't have another one like that. And I'm just really sad and it's a hard time. And I want to post because that's, that's real. And we can't, we shouldn't, I don't think we should always post just the happy stuff. This is authentic. And um, somebody I know on Twitter and have never met in real life. She's like, let's get you a new wine glass. Like I want to order you two wine glasses. (laughs) And I think in the, you know, pre pandemic, I would have said, no, like, it's fine. And my husband's like, you can't accept that. Like we can afford $40. I'll buy you wine glasses. And I'm like, no, I'm, I'm going to say yes. Like it felt important to me to say yes. I I really felt like she wouldn't have offered if she didn't genuinely mean it and she wanted to help and it would make her feel good. And I wouldn't do it for myself. And my husband was busy enough and I don't know. And so 
this is a long story for maybe a very small point. No, it's great. No, I love different it. People have helped in different ways and people have stepped up in different ways. And yeah. you never know like the very small things that you do that will help somebody else or just make a big impression. So yeah. you can start small. And that's how I started this project was just very small. So like pick up an extra dozen donuts when you go get your family donuts next time and drop them off anywhere. <laughs> I guarantee right. you they won't go to waste, you right. know, support your local food bank and say, you can either give this to your staff and volunteers or, or give them to needy people or, you know, I, you know, not to emphasize donuts because, you know, everybody loves donuts, but you know, take some carrots too, please. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's right. That's right. Oh, that's no, that's, I'm, I'm glad you took the time to tell that story. It, it is important because it's the big sweeping stuff and it's feeding people who are hungry, who are, you know, but it's also small kindnesses can mean everything. Uh, and, and I just think that the, 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 the pandemic is also, and a lot is starting to be written about this is just, um, there's just more, uh, more authenticity. Now, uh, anytime there's a crisis in the world, uh, genuine genuineness and kindness come to the forefront. But I feel like the pandemic and and uh, and the other events of of, of two thousand uh, really, um, it's been a more prolonged. It's been more prolonged. Say, like the reaction of uh, after nine uh, eleven. You know, um, so. Um, which is not to discount anything that happened in those, those other tragedies, but. Um, well, I don't but think it, there's any, there's been nothing in, in recent times of, of this scale and duration. That's right. So I think that's absolutely fair to say. Mm -hmm. And I also have to say, you know, I have a lot of privilege to be able to quit one of my two jobs. Um, you know, it's not, I mean, we, yes, we have eaten a lot of beans and rice, um, mm -hmm. but that's not all we've eaten and we've had plenty of food, you know, and we have heat and we have a, you know, our home. So oh, sure, extremely fortunate. Um, I, I agree yeah, with you, um, you know, the, you know, I've, I've been able to keep my job and, and, and work from home for St. Jude. My wife has kept her job. Uh, thankfully we have three savvy kids that are pretty good with going to to school on, on zoom calls. Um, you know, I, I really feel for, especially people who have lost a loved one, people who have lost a job, uh, um, and, or single and, and, parents, single working parents. I can't, yeah, I just I cannot can't imagine even, like no. if I were stuck at home and working and had a four and a six year old. Oh gosh. Yeah. Especially parents of smaller children. It's been, it's more, been more of a burden. So, um, and, and so you, you, you bring up the, the subject of, of privilege and you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And I know that there's a piece of that, that, um, uh, for me anyway, f I felt guilt. And, and when I would analyze it, I go, why do I feel guilty? Well, would you wish hardship on yourself? No. Uh, so then that turns to gratitude for, um, not having it, you know, as harsh as others have had it. And then I guess that turns to how can I plug in and how can I help? Uh, right. How, how can you add action to that sense of guilt or gratitude? And yeah. I think that's that's very valid and it's very common. I mean, my husband, even as a pediatric pulmonologist, felt guilt. Our friend who's a, a surgeon um, felt guilty because, 
you know, their colleagues were more at risk. Uh, you know, there's a whole sort of tier and hierarchy there, you know, of course they're at risk, but they weren't, you know, in the COVID units in New York city or, and, and I do know right. people on Twitter. I know, I know physicians who flew into those pandemic hotspots to, to work in the trenches in the COVID units. And they're just, right. It, it's, they're amazing people. I, yeah. You admire that, that courage. Um, but I, I guess, do, and I worry about the trauma after this sort of has, you know, the pandemic has quieted down some. And I think, you know, you asked about sustainability at the beginning and um, you just jump and you kind of go on an adrenaline and, and mission. And then the, sort of the fatigue sets in that I, I say we've been running a marathon or sprinting a marathon. What is the phrase? Sprinting a marathon? I know. It, it, yeah. I think it's sprinting that. a marathon. It's, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's hard to, to go intensely and then also go for a long time. And that's, that's where yeah. we are now. So there's a, there's a lot of fatigue. There's going to be trauma. Um, mm -hmm. And it's hard for healthcare professionals to feel, um, feel like they don't know what to do. And that, you know, in the beginning when they couldn't keep people from dying, I mean, that is really, yeah. that is really traumatic because they're used to being able to fix things. Right. Yeah. You know, uh, putting on my St. Jude hat, um, one of the things that's come to the fore in the pandemic in terms of the media relations work that I've done is psychology. Um, we early on in the pandemic, uh, members of our psychology department worked with an illustrator and a child life staffer uh, to create a coronavirus coloring book. Mm -hmm. uh, for children ages five to nine to work through their uh, pandemic fears with a trusted adult, other uh, uh, resources for tweens and then teens were um, created. And then, and then the way that synced up with my work as a PR guy, you know, uh, was the fact that <clears throat> they were at, at the staffers were the most willing, you know, experts ever. But, and I just, after a while, once the story honestly started to perpetuate itself and they were so glad to give themselves over to the extra publicity work because they knew that it meant that children all over the world, and we ended up having it translated into 15 different languages and offered as a free download, it was downloaded tens of thousands of times. They um, they responded uh, to to that, and, and we did north of 160, you know, media interviews, uh, some of which were national in scope. My point is, they uh, as that media cycle went changed and morphed and changed. You know, you had oh, summer vacation, what happens when teens want to get together? How will we make them mm -hmm. social distancing? You know, is peer pressure going to, you know, and and yeah. and our psychologists really, their expertise in working with children and teens at St. Jude, um, uh, and, and but Valerie Crabtree, one of our, our, our main ball carriers on the media side for this, she's also a mom of teens. So she brought all that to the fore, but, like psychology, you know, I, I didn't, it didn't dawn on me at first that psychology would be the thing that kind of like rose up and like served the world. But now it's, it's, it's the most obvious thing in the world. Yes. It's infectious diseases, you know, first and foremost, and our infectious diseases faculty had been just like, you know, our, our absolute, uh, you know, we've been keeping rock them. Stars, so busy. Right? The rock stars beyond rock stars. Uh, and, uh, honestly, we thought we knew the infectious diseases department, but now I really have a, 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 an even deeper admiration for how deep of a bench 
we have at St. Jude, but psychology has been the other thing that's kind of come to the fore and it's, it's, and it will, it will remain as a central plank probably for years. Um, as, as we begin to unpack and make sense of, uh, what happened in the year 2000 and, 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 and obviously 2021, we still got more to go. Right. Um, and then, and then the role of science communicators and sort of plain language and how do you speak to the audience and, yeah. and as we all know, facts are not enough. So how do you wrap the facts that you're trying to convey around a story that yeah. makes it personal to somebody? I mean, just two days ago, I was driving a delivery um, near I-5, one of our major highways, and there were 12 people out with signs saying, say no to the COVID-19 vaccine and the pandemic is a fraud. And I thought, how are we 12 months into this? I wow. know four people personally who died of COVID and several friends, you know, close friends who had it. How are we 12 months into this and people think it's a fraud or people think, you know, it's some political agenda I, I just, I can't fathom. And they think, you know, the vaccine was made too quickly. Yeah. You know, a lot of that basic science and nanotechnology was already there. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's why we need to fund science. It's why science is important. Um, we're all interconnected and this is not going to be our last pandemic, unfortunately. So I, I agree with you um, both about the pandemic, but also science communications and science coming to the fore, broadly speaking. That's a trend that I've noted as a PR practitioner, uh, and it's as horrible as the pandemic has been. It's also been an extremely challenging, in a good way, year for me as a PR guy uh, to to represent St. Jude, and 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 I've noted that science has really come to the fore in terms of, I mean, obviously it has because like it's the thing that's bedeviling the world and 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 and, and killing people and wrecking our economies and 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 throwing people out of work. So I've noticed that the science specifics, uh, the old rule of thumb used to be in terms of consumer media, it had to be science light, whereas this really hardcore science was really in trade media. But I think the, it's, the calibration is a little bit different now. I think a lot of serious like science, very specific science uh, is making it into consumer media because Joe and Jane, everybody, you know, consuming the news want to know the specifics. And I hope that one of the outputs of the pandemic is that science um, is an interest in science uh, remains elevated. I agree. And I would say science plus journalism and what an important role journalism, including photojournalism, has played in the last year in yes. not only conveying information, but affecting how people feel about things, which is such an important part of mm-hmm. how they trust different media sources and how they take in the information that's trying to be put forth. Um, yeah, there's yeah. you bring it's up an remarkable. excellent point that could be honestly be its own second interview, which is, which is obviously media literacy uh, and, and, and the, the divisiveness of how the political divide basically set up two camps uh, uh, you know, uh, disinformation and information were both, you know, hurtling down the tracks at a thousand miles an hour. And, 
And uh, we were all surfing around trying to find the, the best distilled down version of the truth such that we could take action in the world. Uh, and, you know, it's like, I, I don't think we've begin, we've, I don't think we've begun to reckon up uh, that in the role of media and the role of social media and social media companies. I feel like we're just at the dawn of those conversations, but they have to be had. Yeah, and it's interesting too. I mean, you and I are from the generation where you bought an album and you listened to the entire thing and you got to know that artist or that band sort of yeah. from the first song to the last. And now kids have access to, you know, Spotify and Pandora and Apple Music and all these different things and they pick and choose and they know they know so many more artists, but probably very rarely an entire album. Yeah. Um and likewise with media, it used to be everybody would watch Walter Cronkite or, you know, the same sort of one of the three major news networks. And now it's so fragmented and there's so much information coming at you. Yeah. But I think it's harder. It's so hard now for a lot of people to, to judge what good information is or. I feel like before you got kind of the same information. But so we were dealing with the base of knowledge bent to it. Yeah. yeah. So people aren't even starting from the same foundation to have a conversation. And it's, it's very problematic. <laughs> it really is. And of course, you know, you, you want to maintain free speech, uh, you know, and, but, uh, and I wouldn't want to tail that, but then how, how, how does one put the genie back in the bottle and find a way to where we have a common, common enough, language so that we can have we can operate from from base, basic truths you know um it's just when when i have endless options and i can go curate my own version of the truth as an a la carte menu with endless options uh and i mean there's always been variety of opinions and a, and a, and a spectrum from liberal to conservative and everybody in between uh, that's been present for a long time but i think we have a hyper partisan uh, atmosphere um, where, you know, media companies are camped out and, and, uh, it, it pays to divide people and to curate your own little niche. Whereas it's, it's funny. You mentioned music at first. I thought, where's she going with this? But I, I totally <laughs> get it. But, and, and in the same way, you know, um, like I go to the physical therapist and like they, they play a different station every time. Sometimes the sixties and sometimes the seventies, eighties modern, you know, and it's like all the different genres. And, and you realize in listening to old, you know, fifties, you know, rock and roll, you know, that was the kind of Pangea, if you will, you know, before the continent split up. Uh, and then of course you had different varieties of, 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 of rock and roll, you know, like acid rock, but then, you know, like, Today, you know, you'd you obviously, you know, the the foundational like split off of of stoner rock was Black Sabbath, for instance, and you know, but it's like, uh, you, you know, you've got dubstep and uh, uh, oh, it, my, my daughters have, have have exposed me to what's called vaporwave. Uh, oh, and, educate and it, me! I don't know that one. It's it, it's like, and I I made this comment to my daughter Genevieve. I said vaporwave is kind of like dubstep's super chill cousin and she's like can i get that dad and i was like i felt Aww. really really insightful that my 17 year old is like nice that's, that's a high compliment from a 17 year old yeah yes. but 
you know, as a, as a band dude myself that, you know, was drawn to that early punk scene and, you know, f- formed, you know, the band Pez and we toured and made albums and stuff, um, you know, and then you read your own record reviews and they're like, oh, this, they're an they're emo punk band or, oh, they're post hardcore or post punk you know, or, or anthemic punk or melodic hardcore. Like there are all sorts of different names and, you know, like after emo, then there was like screamo, which is like basically (laughs) emo music with like super shred your vocals. Like, and it's like, then there's speed metal and death metal and black metal, you know, and it's kind of like, in other words, my point is there's so many subgenres now that you can be totally into, Oh, I'm only into, you know, like, death metal and vaporwave you know and it's like and, and i think the same is true with with the subclassification of news outlets you can get yeah. you can nerd out on any particular piece of, you know of the of, of subturf that you want to go find because the internet is endless right there, yeah there, there it's are also, no limits I think on content channels there's so many so many outlets and and channels and but there's so much noise that it's really challenging to be heard above the din and that's sort of been one of the challenges for my project you know i wrote an article for the timmerman project or timmerman report which is sort of a local biotech uh newsletter um i've been covered by some blogs you know here more, more locally yeah Seattle Magazine has Seattle Met Magazine has has run a few little articles on me in the UW Daily Newspaper, University of Washington, and um, Seattle Times um, on Christmas morning. Actually, my family woke me up early. My present was I was supposed to be able to sleep in, and they woke me up at nine to say you're in the editorial cartoon, um, which was by David Horsey, which is oh, very wow. exciting. That it was sort of a, a collage of of heroes of 2020, and I'm I'm in there. That is um, so next cool. to Bill Gates. Yeah, so that was very exciting. But it's it's also just sort of been hard to get any um, attention, and and it's not like I want the attention personally, but. You know, I always love more donations. I love to hear about more frontline sites that need support. I love to hear about restaurants who want to help out or who who need, you know, orders placed. Um, and so the more I can get the word out, the more that that um, those needs arise to my attention. And it's just, it's just been it's been it's been tough. But um, that said, sort of some of my posting has because I'm on Twitter, I did have somebody from the New York Times contact me to talk about um, women who have voluntarily quit their jobs during the pandemic and voluntarily meaning they quit their jobs proactively because they had children at home or there was Mm -hmm. too much going on for them to be able to work their full-time job. Um, And then um, that New York Times, you know, like one sentence about me, CBS, today contacted me and I did a little interview for them. And then the one, the producer, it was supposed to run and I, you know, taped it and, and it was not, it didn't run. And I was like, what happened? And she's like, so your segment got bumped because uh, Trump is being impeached with the first impeachment. <laughs> and I was like, hi, you know, you just cannot compete with the, the magnitude of the, yeah. the events going on right now. It's, it was just, it's been such a roller coaster of a year. It really has been. Um, so that's probably a good segue for me to, because th- this is, I, th- I think 
I'm only 15 episodes in, but this is, this is like by far uh, my longest episode at this point, mm-hmm. but it's been because we've been having a really good conversation. So I appreciate you taking the extra time, Alan. Of course. Um, but, uh, and we really have, we kind of went, we went, pretty deep, which is, which is a place where I like to live. So I really appreciate you going there with me, but as we, um, as we wrap up, uh, I want to ask, um, is two part question. First, is there anything I didn't know to ask about? We got the Seattle that you'd like to speak to. And then secondarily, uh, where can people learn, uh, more about, we got the Seattle and how can they best support you and the effort? So um, I think I just, I, I try to end with gratitude and what I will take away from this time is all the different local businesses and restaurants who have stepped up to help me, you know, whether I paid for the food, whether they donated it, whether they heavily discounted it. It's been an incredibly trying time for local restaurants and you know, I know when they cook that food that it is made with love and delicious and that they're just happy to be doing, you know, what it is that they were put on this earth to do. And then the yeah. frontline workers have been just doing an amazing, amazing job at, 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 at not an insignificant risk to themselves. So I have to say that and and I will you know, I've made a lot of friends, even though you only, it, it's so weird in this time, you know, normally you would hug people and have conversations and you just yeah, don't have I the know. luxury of that. So you're masked, you're six feet away, you know, trying not to yell at the other person, but you do have to be slightly louder and everybody's so busy. It's like three minutes of like, oh my gosh, it's so nice to see you. How are you? Are you okay? Okay. Here's the food, you know, and then they run back into work. Um, wow, yeah. So it's sort of this strange personal interactions that mm-hmm. are so different than any other time in my life. Um, but if people want to help out, I mean, I would say they can do it at a local level and just call your favorite restaurants, ask them to do takeout, pick it up, take it, you know, call contact ahead of time, whatever your, your dentist, your physician, your nurse practitioner, your daycare, wherever you shop for groceries and ask what they would like. Um, and then you can, you know, can always say, I only have a hundred dollars. What can you make for me? You know, maybe it's croissants or maybe it's a sandwich or it's, you know, you just go buy some chocolates at your grocery store and drop them off at a site. Um, if they want to help my project, there's a website. We got the Seattle.org. Um, there's a donate button that takes you to a page at open collective, which is a, an umbrella 501c3 nonprofit. So the donation goes through them. They send the tax deduction acknowledgement letter to the donor. And then everything is transparent. Every single donation is listed. You can be anonymous, of course. Um, And then there's a, a tally for the budget. And then I upload receipts or restaurants upload invoices. And we always list where it's going, how many people it fed and and what it is. And I'm very, very frugal, which is my upbringing. So I always ask for discounts. <laughs> I get a lot cool. of donations. I'm shameless at asking. So um, just so grateful. So many people have stepped up to make this 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 happen and to and to help people in Seattle and the surrounding areas. 
And you stepped up too, Ellen. If you're not going to pat yourself on the, I know you wouldn't <laughs> pat yourself on the back. So I'm going to, I'm going to sing your praises. So pat myself it's, on the back. it's amazing. It's amazing. Uh, the work that you've done and it's, it's an unbelievably harrowing tale that I'm sure will, uh, it, it has taken an emotional toll, but also has, 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 uh, delivered some pretty special, uh, unique, um, experiences you know it has not been a boring year uh um, for you it sounds like that is correct and you you know you you need to sometimes take a step back and reassess and look at what's the overarching meaning and can you sustain this and what's important to you and so that's that's been sort of an iterative project ongoing um effort for me i did i did have to step back from March, April, May, doing eight to 12 deliveries a day and just say, I, I can't do this much. Um, and so what were the important sites to me to support? What were the restaurants that needed the help most? Um, and then to kind of be able to ramp back up again and to bring in more volunteers as I sort of had the capacity to delegate more. Right. Wow. Well, um, I really appreciate you being on the show and, and uh, best of luck in, in what remains. Thank you so much. It's, it's been a pleasure, as always, talking to you. Yeah. Thanks for listening. Champions of the Lost Causes podcast is a production of the OAM Network, available on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, and at the OAMnetwork.com. I'm your host, Marvin Stockwell, produced by Gil Worth and J.D. Rieger. Logo and design by the OAM Network. Be sure to follow the show on Instagram and Facebook, and I'm on Twitter at, at Marvin Stockwell. Keep up with the latest at championsofthelostcauses.org. The OAM Network is an independently run podcast and live production company in Memphis, Tennessee. TheOAMNetwork.com. Power to the podcast.